Hello, and welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board, the podcast dedicated to discussing social and political issues in the Nashville community. I'm your host, Benjamin Eagles. Views that I express on this podcast and on my social media accounts are mine alone and do not reflect the views of the Metropolitan Government of Nashville and Davidson County. So today I'm joined by Vonda McDaniel, the president of the Central Labor Council, and Ethan Link, who is the assistant business manager of Southeast Laborers and treasurer for the CLC. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks for having us, Ben. No doubt. So I guess to start out with a little bit of background on each of you, how you got into the labor movement and how you got to Nashville. So I'm a native Nashvilleian, grew up here, graduated from McGavick High School. Yay, McGavick High School, Raiders. And I went to work for Bridgestone Firestone 26 years ago. I worked my way up from a shop steward to being president of Labor Council. I've served in a variety of roles in the union movement, um, and it's been a learning experience and a great ride. And uh, I guess if I could say when I got involved in the labor movement, when I was uh, growing up in Gallatin, uh, my grandfather was a a union boilermaker and worked on TVA plants. Um, so it was always something that folks knew about in my family, but I didn't really know where my place would be in it. You know, after college, the best uh, job I could find coming out of that was working at the uh, SEIU. You know, after working at SEIU, organizing, um, you know, for the health care plan that President Obama was pushing at the time, I um, joined up with uh, some political campaigns and then found my way to the laborers, LIUNA. We represent uh, construction workers. Uh, mostly in the civil trades, uh, who do some of the most dangerous and uh, difficult work in the building trades. And also we represent uh, the service employees at Vanderbilt University, which uh, you know all about, Ben. That's where we met. Yep, that's right. So I guess to get things started, can each of you give me your favorite labor quote? I'm sure you got one with Labor Day coming up here in just a few days. So George Meany was the first president of the AFL-CIO And one of the things that he was often asked was about the mission of organized labor. And he said the basic goal of labor will never change. It is and always has been about building better standards of living for all who work, for wages, and seek decency and justice and dignity for all Americans. I think that's an important part of what we do. And, um, yeah, that's my favorite quote. I think it's short and sweet and uh, a lot about what's going on in Nashville right now. Mother Jones, she said, pray for the dead and fight like hell for the living. I guess, can you guys speak to the state of labor within Nashville, kind of union membership numbers and growth nationally? Two of the biggest labor issues, it, it seems like, have been in recent years, the Fight for 15 campaign for a $15 minimum wage for a lot of service employees and then teacher strikes that we've seen in a number of states. What is the nature of organized labor within Nashville, and how has that changed in in recent years? So over the years, the Labor Council, actually, uh, I took over as president of the Labor Council. I was a secretary for 20 years, and I took over as president about four years ago. And at that time, we represented about 17,000 folks. Um, But they're about 25,000 union members in in the city of Nashville. Um, Since that time, we've grown in terms of our labor council to represent just about 21,000 folks. But what we're seeing, um, the BLS numbers say two years ago that union organizing 
in the state of Tennessee has grown tremendously and actually was one of the top states in the country uh, for union organizing uh, right after 2009. So the union movement definitely in the last uh, few years has been on an uptick in spite of many of the adverse things that are happening. And so I guess quickly to define some some terms, what exactly is the Central Labor Council for people who are not familiar? And then a lot of people know, of course, that Tennessee is a right-to-work state. What does that mean, and what is this recent Supreme Court ruling about union dues? How does that affect workers in Tennessee since we're right-to-work? So Tennessee has been right-to-work since 1942. What that translates to mean is that Tennessee is one of the highest uh, minimum wage states in the country. Union membership tends to translate with earnings. Um, The higher the density of union membership, uh, generally the higher the percentage of higher wage jobs. Um, So So you said it was one of the highest minimum wage states states in the country. As in highest percentage of workers making the minimum wage? That's correct. Okay. Because we don't, in fact, have a state minimum wage, right? We do not. We follow the federal minimum wage, um, which is seven twenty-five an hour currently. Just making sure people got that clear. But, yeah, union membership is growing, um, particularly in places in the South where most of the states are right to work. And so growth had, over the years, been stagnant. Actually, Texas uh, last year had 80,000 members to join the union which is remarkable, especially when there are so many barriers to union membership these days. And so what exactly does right to work mean? So, you know, right to work is a deceptive way to describe when an employee does not have the full protections that you should have of a collective bargaining agreement. And so the way that a right to work state operates when you're a union is that you, um, you know, cannot, what, what a lot of people hear about is the way that dues are collected. That's what you hear about on the news a lot. It just means that it makes it more difficult to collect dues. Uh, it is a way that you can't collect them directly, but you also can't collect agency fees, um, which are the fees that people pay to support the negotiation and enforcement of a contract uh, that they benefit from that they are going to get the pay and all the benefits that are negotiated within. They might not want to pay full union dues, and they might not want to participate in any political activity, but at least they're contributing to the negotiations and the enforcement of the contract. And that's what the recent Supreme Court ruling affected, right? And that's what it affects. It says that you can't even, you can't even do that. And so it creates a problem of people who know that uh, they can free ride on the hard work and unity of others who are fighting to try to raise wages for everyone and raise benefits for everyone or make sure that there's fair uh, work rules. But the other thing it means for uh, a union uh, representative is it also means that uh, those same employees who are free riding on the entire union, we have to represent them just like any other uh, member. And uh, I I can't think of many situations, many service providers or many nonprofits or um, anyone who would think that it would be fair uh, to say that you know folks who had no who didn't support the organization uh, and their fellow workers would have to then you know represent that person, um, but that's what right to work means. The effect in the South is interesting because what it has created here 
is a base of union members who, if you're a union member in the South, you really want to be a union member. There is no question that you signed up because uh, you, you got to go through a lot of uh, steps. And when you win uh, an agreement and when you sign all the paperwork, being a union member is an intentional act in the South. And what has uh, come out of that is, I believe, a, a generation of organizers, uh, an organizing base here in the South that you don't see everywhere else in the country. Um, you know, Vonda and I are lucky enough to get to meet and spend time with a lot of our brothers and sisters in other states uh, that are going through uh, the change to right to work uh, for less. You know, we're telling them, you know, uh, sadly, welcome to the club. But the good news is we know how to do something about it. And so organizing is uh, the only way to change the outcomes. And we have a lot of people coming now to the South to learn how we organize in a the conditions that we have here. Thanks for that background. So what are some recent gains? You you mentioned that Tennessee has seen a lot of new union members in the last few years. I think there were some really notable losses. Um, the UAW at the Volkswagen plant was a really kind of dramatic vote. But what are some examples of, of some big wins within the state? Um, that's an interesting question. So um, the larger uh, Volkswagen vote uh, was defeated, but then they came back and did what they call a micro unit. So the the maintenance uh, group at Volkswagen in Chattanooga um, uh, voted and 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 won a union. Um, and there have also the machinists have been doing quite a bit of organizing. Uh, SEIU continues to add uh, members um, at the places that they represent. The Electrolux plant in Memphis, Memphis. was organized by the IBEW, and they've uh, you know started organizing industrial work like that uh, in a really um, a really uh, energetic way. So uh, there's several other campaigns going on, and a lot of the parts suppliers that are all around Spring Hill uh, that are outside of the the GM plant, a lot of those parts supplying companies are one by one joining uh, that broader network of the UAW. So, you know, we're really proud of that too. A lot of the union growth in Tennessee uh, over the last several years has come from those organizing efforts. Um, But also a lot of the growth has come from the natural uh, rise in people reinvesting and joining back in the trades now that it's very much in demand. So in the building trades, we have a lot, you know, I mean, the Tennessee's uh, like building economy in a lot of our cities and suburbs is booming. And uh, what comes along with that is that at the end of the day, you want to, you want to ride in a union elevator, not a non-union elevator. Absolutely. (laughs) And so uh, a lot of the union membership in the building trades is continuing to pick up because the demands of the skill that is needed to build the kinds of things that we're building now uh, is increasing, and the supply of people who are trained and have experience is uh, going away. And so we've we've got to replace um, you know that stock, and we've and a lot of people are joining up for that reason. A lot of the membership that you talked about there is kind of industrial work; it's service work. What's the future of organized labor in kind of a new economy of information workers, of kind of a tech skill set. Where's the future there? So we're seeing adjunct professors joining all over the country. And and that's one of the um, largest 
a group, a sector of workers that are joining um, the union in large numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh, they were organized by SEIU, right? Um, also, you have um, Uber drivers, um, not that hadn't made it to the South yet, but in New York, they have begun to organize Uber drivers. Um, in Silicon Valley, um, workers for Amazon and for Google um, are seeing that um, the collectively they can do better than uh, by themselves. So they are also beginning to join unions. So, I mean, young people generally joined. Um, last year we had 262,000 new members to join the union across the country. And two-thirds of that number was people younger than 25. Wow. So... What that means to me is that there's a, a new energy and enthusiasm around union membership, uh, which probably will cut across sectors. Do you think the Occupy movement and more recently kind of the Bernie Sanders wave has lent new energy to the labor movement? Um, I do. I mean, for the first time, people running for office aren't afraid to claim and um, and talk about what unions have contributed to our economy and why having powerful unions um, makes sense. I have to admit that I really didn't understand what um, being a socialist Democrat meant. But all of the issues that Bernie raised around health care and good jobs, a secure retirement, are, are issues that I think that everyone can gravitate around. So... I think that brought new energy to the labor movement and also many of the other issues that we care about. Yeah, I can speak from, you know, being uh, in, in a generation that really uh, came into its own at right in the middle of the financial crisis in 2007, 2008. You know, between that and rising student debt and rising cost of living in the cities where a lot of folks in my generation are, are choosing to live, or where the jobs that they are um, trying to pursue are, you know, it's created a, a whole generation of people who don't have the same social contract that generations before have had. Uh, they were told, you go to a four-year university, you know, if you make all Bs and get out and play by the rules, you're going to be able to have a middle-class life, you're going to be able to buy a home, and you're going to be able to retire with dignity. And I don't know anybody that is in my generation that thinks that that's secured for them already. Uh, what I think we've, we've created is a whole generation of people that see uh, their future as very contingent and unsure in talking about that with each other uh, have come to the, some of the same ideas and same conclusions that we see, you know, in Cortez Masto, in Bernie Sanders, in a lot of the new generation of young politicians that are coming out and firmly embracing the tools that make that middle-class life possible, uh, rather than just alluding to them or apologizing for them, they say, no, no, this is actually the way you achieve the middle class. And they know that because it's the way America built the middle class the first time around. Ethan, before you mentioned the booming construction economy within Nashville and around the state, I know safety, worker safety on construction sites has been an important topic 
uh, specifically for, for your work. Can you talk about that and, and sort of the safety problems that a lot of people don't realize as they drive around and see a lot of cranes? Absolutely. I mean, you know, people talk about Nashville being Crane City and that, you know, if you wanted a job, you could just go over there and jump on one at a construction site. And uh, it's not that easy. Um, the stock of qualified, uh, trained workers in construction is nearly depleted uh, in Nashville and really across the South. And so what you have is a lot of contingent workforce uh, that is transient, that goes from city to city, follows the work. Uh, you don't have, you're, you're probably not going to live next to a construction worker because a, a lot of construction workers don't live anyone, any one place. Uh, they're, they're on the move. Uh, that's the way that a lot of particularly civil work, carpentry work, uh, uh, drywall work, laborers work is being done in this city right now. And some folks would think, okay, well, if there's just more construction, Construction is, by its nature, dangerous, so there's going to be more injuries and deaths proportionally. Well, it turns out that's not necessarily true uh, because in Nashville, um, there was a study called the Build a Better South um, report that uh, the Partnership for Working Families um, spearheaded, and it studied uh, several southern cities, Nashville, Atlanta, Houston, Charlotte, I believe uh, New Orleans, and it found that Nashville far and away had more people who had been employed through a temporary service in the last uh, two years, more people who had um, been injured on the job with and not and not received any workers' comp pay. That reputation of that being the nature of that work also drives people away from wanting to engage in it. It uh, drives uh, people in our generation away from saying that, that this is something I want to be part of because, you know, it's a career and it's safe and it's skilled. And so we've created a, a real problem in Nashville of a large contingent workforce that doesn't have uh, the consistent training. They don't stay with a particular employer for very long, a few days here, a few days there. They're paid by piecework. What that also means is that when you don't have regular training and when you don't have standardized safety training, it's not just about what you're doing on the site, but it's about what who's the person next to you is doing on the site. Just like driving a car. Yep. Exactly. You're only as safe as the is the uh, least safe person on the road there. So that's what it winds up happening on a lot of our construction sites here. And so what we've seen over the last two years is I believe more than 14 fatalities in the Nashville construction market just over the last two years, primarily on mixed use commercial development. So uh, a lot of these high rises you see that have, you know, the retail in the bottom and the condos up top and mm -hmm. everybody knows that's what Nashville's growth looks like right now. Uh, that's the site of a lot of the falls, a lot of fall protection issues. That's the site of electrocutions uh, when people are not uh, are told to do things that are unsafe and when there's live electric electricity. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of the workers here because they don't have the protection of a union contract or the protection of, of their rights, uh, many are undocumented and therefore, in, especially in this, this day and age, uh, are intimidated by the, you know, the authorities that, you know, that can use that against them. They won't report and they won't speak up. And when something is happening on the job that's unsafe, 
that, that puts not only them, but everybody else at peril. And by the way, the public at peril, the people walking by on the sidewalk, they don't feel like they can speak up because it'll cause more trouble to them and it's worth perhaps the risk. And, and I don't, you know, I don't think anybody believes that's a good situation or a good way for it to be. And so I, you know, I just think it's something that in Nashville, it's an urgent problem. It doesn't have to be this way. There are other cities that are growing and thriving and building uh, uh, high rises where these safety standards are met and people don't die just to build a condo. It doesn't happen everywhere and it doesn't have to happen here. So on that note, in terms of how we can make jobs, better jobs, safer jobs, the Community Benefits Agreement has got a lot of attention recently in terms of being negotiated on the pending soccer stadium deal at the fairgrounds. How did that come to be? What are the future implications there? And and kind of first off, what is a community benefits agreement? Well, a community benefit agreement is uh, a really uh, exciting policy tool that municipalities can use that allows typically a, a nonprofit a community organization that is often that collects the interests of uh, neighborhoods of the disenfranchised in a given city, and it uh, can come to a private agreement with a private developer. Uh, typically, that developer is receiving some kind of a subsidy, uh, receiving some kind of benefit from the government that is a um, that makes that project uh, contingent on public support, and so the community says, well. If we are giving you what is either whether it's public land or, uh, you know, a, a different tax rate or whatever the case may be, the people who live here now who are going to experience all of the consequences of the growth that that city is incentivizing, they should have a say and they should have some benefit that directly comes to them as a result of that project. And we can't just assume that that will always happen. Uh, Community benefit agreements have been negotiated uh, across the nation. Uh, There's been some really notable examples in Austin, in uh, Miami, in Cincinnati. A lot of times we point to the Pittsburgh Penguins Stadium, the Milwaukee Bucks Stadium, uh, which are really the models for what we're doing here in Nashville is when Stand Up Nashville, which the Central Labor Council and Lyuna are part of, we use those two as the prime uh, models for how we approach the community benefit agreement here. And so just a quick word, a, the community benefits agreement here is being negotiated by Stand Up Nashville, which is a nonprofit group, because the state has made sure that metro government can't do it themselves, correct? And they can't enforce living wage laws and local hire laws. So preemption has been... Um a tool that has been used by um, particularly uh, Republican-led legislators across the country. And so the tools that um, we have been trying to use to improve the lives of working families around affordable housing, around um, local hire, around trying to improve workforce training, um, all of those things have been preempted by our state legislature. So this is a unpreemptible tool that we think can really make a difference in terms of how we do um, economic development in the city. So I know groups like the components of Stand Up Nashville, NOAA, 
Affordable Housing Advocates, CLC, have been pushing for community benefits agreements on public projects such as the Sound Stadium, I'm sure the Convention Center. This has been discussed for years, and it's always been consistent opposition, I think, both from Metro leadership as well as Chamber and and state folks as well. What made this case different, and why are we now at the precipice of getting the first ever community benefits agreement in Tennessee done? Well, I mean, you kind of answered the question in your question, which is that people in Nashville have seen deal after deal done uh, in their name with their tax dollars, with their property, and have come to the conclusion after having, you know, run this model of development for years that it is not a perfect way, certainly, and maybe certainly not the preferable way for neighbors and workers in the, in this city uh, to have development done. They've seen the examples. They've seen projects where Thousands of jobs have been um, touted, like the Sound Stadium, only to find that they nobody they knew could get access to that work, uh, even though they knew a lot of people that needed good-paying jobs. They were told to go to a temp agency if they need if they wanted to work on that stadium. You know, I think they've seen project after project and and development after development where the perception is at least that the developer gets a great end of that deal. And the community doesn't. And uh, this time, we had a really kind of special circumstance. We have a very supportive uh, Metro Council. We have one of the best um, progressive pro-labor, you know, blocks there on Metro Council who were able to champion it. I think that helped a lot. Um, But also that people were finally organized to take advantage of that opportunity. And um, in the past, it, a lot of people had been trying to get at the same issue, but they weren't working in coordination and they weren't working together. You know, labor was doing its thing. Affordable housing activists were, you know, doing their own thing. NOAA was one of the first, you know, kind of outgrowths of that, of people finding each other collective in Nashville. Power. Of collective power, which of course is like, it is exactly what unionism is about. Organize money, organize people, organize votes, and um, you know, give people the power to have a say in development. And that's that's what it happened this time. I'd like to think we got the formula right now, and if we can make this happen in Nashville, it'll be one of the most powerful community benefit agreements in the South, and it will be a great example even within the nation. Uh, even a lot of progressive cities would like to have a community benefit agreement like the one that we're uh, proposing. And if we win this, I'd say it's a new day for development in Nashville. I think the other really exciting piece of this is that I think that there is a perception about labor unions that they only represent the interest of their affiliates. Hmm. But this is a pretty broad-based agreement that covers a variety of and addresses a variety of community needs. For unions to be able to play a part in that, I think is very powerful um, going forward and something to build on. Within the negotiations, Stand Up Nashville and Nashville SC, the soccer holdings group, who's in that room? What does that look like? Is it is it Odessa Kelly head to head with John Ingram? I mean, what <laughs> what does that look like exactly? Uh, you know, it's it's uh, not quite that at all, um, but it it. it it's it has been a it has been a really rewarding learning process because 
Um, you know, I as a labor representative have negotiated contracts before in very formal settings uh, where you go to the same room every day. Uh, you know, you it's adversarial, adversarial. Uh, you all know you have all the both sides have their information and they're going to mm-hmm. they're going to bang out a contract as quickly as they can or, uh, you know, or, or take next steps. This is very different from my experience. Mm-hmm. It, it has involved a lot of learning from both sides. And that actually has been one of the interesting and, and powerful parts of the, of the process is that, um, you know, folks from the Nashville Soccer Holdings Club, uh, when they were putting together, you know, some of the uh, concepts of the development, you know, didn't take, might not have taken into account some of the issues that we bring up, right? And it takes meeting, meeting over and over. It takes description. It takes, um, you know, explanation. It takes real life examples, and it also takes a lot of passion. A lot of people speaking very passionately about uh, what's happening in their community. Um, and I'd like to think, and I really think that there's evidence right now of this, that that's gotten through, and uh, it gives me a lot of faith that we can change things. By the same token, you know, our side, uh, Stand Up Nashville, you know, we have learned about. The ways that developers, you know, the way the developers make out their costs and figures, figure out, you know, how they prioritize different issues. And um, I think that the what's going to be really great uh, at the end of this thing is that um, we'll have a roadmap for how to make a community benefit agreement happen uh, faster, smoother, more often, uh, at different scales even, uh, for smaller developments or larger developments. I think that we've learned a lot of lessons in how that process works that are going to contribute to a, a future where a community benefit agreement in Nashville is um, the default. Is the default. That's the way to do business. Uh, people will say, where is your community benefit agreement? You know, And so that's where we're getting to, and I'm really excited about the progress we've made. So you mentioned progress. We are six days away from the, the third reading, the final vote on the soccer deal where they're going to vote on the demolition of the fairgrounds. They need 27 votes. Right now there are multiple people saying we're going to hold out and I'm going to decide if I'm going to vote yes or not contingent on the community benefits agreement. Then you go to the Tennessean, other news coverage, and the headlines sure make it appear the other day like the community benefits agreement was done. I mean, Tuesday night, the special council meeting, I at least initially got the impression the CBA is done. And it's very exciting. And then I go on Twitter, and Ethan, I actually saw one of your tweets where you were responding back to a local reporter, I think a TV reporter, and you said, no, 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 we're still hashing out um, hiring components, you know, job safety components, local hiring. Um, we're still trying to figure that piece out. So how close are we? We're kind of in the 11th hour here. So uh, what I'd say about that is, I mean, we've made uh, the um, joint – statement that Nashville Soccer Holdings and Stand Up Nashville put out ahead of the special called public hearing um, was something we were really proud of all the progress we had made on a lot of issues. Um, Guaranteed $15.50 minimum wage, for instance, for stadium employees and affordable housing concessions. Yep. Yeah, both of those both of those specific things were hard fought. And like I said, they came from that process of learning and they came from a process of of engaging each other. And so we were really proud of the progress we made there and thought that at that time with the with an important vote and one of the best times to communicate to 
uh, the broader public um, that it was important to make sure that people knew what progress had been made. Uh, however, we do d still have uh, an outstanding issue as particularly uh, involving responsible contractors. Uh, a lot of the building and safety uh, issues that we just talked about are core to the reason that we uh, engaged in this work to begin with. And so we're continuing to have those conversations. We were really optimistic that we're going to, um, you know, get that solved and get that completed. And not for the least reason that we have a lot of really great uh, supporters, not only in the Metro Council, but in the community who came out on that Monday night, put on a stand-up Nashville t-shirt and came in there and said, we're excited about this deal because there could be a community benefit agreement. And so we're, we're really excited about where we could go from here. Uh, but it is important that we not leave workers behind. Mm -hmm. It's great that we got the affordable housing. It's great that we got childcare. Uh, mm -hmm. Everyone's so proud of, uh, you know, the permanent employees that are going to have uh, a living wage um, at that facility. However, we also know that just like a lot of the projects we talked about before, that once they're subcontracted two or three times, a lot of practices start happening that you just don't want on a project that is being done in the city's name. And you end up with the day labor jobs with poor safety standards. That's right. Exactly. So I guess this is sort of a broader question when it comes to community benefits agreement. There have been, of course, a lot of criticism of the proposed soccer deal, calling it a giveaway. Of course, you have 10 acres of public land going to private development. To kind of address those concerns, is any deal too egregious? Is any giveaway too large for you not to be able to put a positive spin on it with a community benefits agreement? Like, can is it possible to just take a deal sprinkle in affordable housing, sprinkle in a $15 minimum wage. Is there any deal egregious enough from sort of a public-private standpoint that you would object to it even if you're getting good jobs out of it and we're getting affordable housing out of it? So can I say that this particular deal has had more discussion in the public domain than any that I can remember, and we've done a lot of development in the city over the last five or six years. And so ultimately, I think that that conversation, understanding what the community has been able to garner um, for the public resources that are involved, uh, will have to decide. Um, but I think that at least they know more than they know. You know, one of the things when we started um, with the do better bill back at the beginning of the year is that too often when economic development deals came before the council, the council members that were voting on them didn't even know the details of what was involved. So I think that a process like we have engaged in with this soccer stadium uh, gives the citizens of Nashville, number one, the opportunity to have voice and input into what actually happens. And ultimately, through their representatives, uh, whether, as you say, the deal is too egregious to do, no matter what the good things are. Um, and so I, I think that's a good thing. I think that it's much better to go from just a few folks at the chamber and maybe one person in the mayor's office knowing what's in the deal to now the whole community over the course of several months uh, being able to, you know, kind of know what the details are. So, um, yeah, I think it's a at the end of the day, it's a 
It's a good deal for Nashville, and uh, I'm just happy to be a part of it as a representative of the Central Labor Council. I suppose that your your roles are to make sure that the deal is as beneficial to the community and to your membership as possible and let the other people decide yay or nay on the final version of it. Absolutely. In terms of specifics to the CLC, voters will get a mailer from various candidates saying, I've been endorsed by the CLC. What does that endorsement mean? What does that process look like? And I know that the membership is really diverse. you got a lot of different types of unions. So kind of politically, how do you keep that all together on, under one tent? Sometimes it can be very challenging because each one of the affiliates, based on their sector, um, has its own self-interest in terms of its members. But the process that we go through in terms of endorsing candidates brings all of our affiliates to the table. Uh, when we develop questionnaires, um, we kind of generally, before we develop the questionnaire, ask for input in terms of the the questions that we ask, the issues that we prioritize, and the candidates that we actually select to come in for further discussion around their questionnaires. Um, And then the um, representatives that are delegates to the CLC um, sit down and have face-to-face contact with the candidates, and we have a um, delegate body that, based on the recommendation of the screening committee, then makes endorsements of the candidates. So it's a pretty time-intensive process, um, which ultimately, I believe, um, is a very thorough vetting of candidates around issues that are important to working families. I think that even our members sometimes, when they receive that mail or in the mail, um, don't recognize all the work that came before the mailer, but based on the concerns that either they or their representatives um, raise with the Central Labor Council about what their priorities are, ultimately those candidates have committed that they support those issues and will make sure that their public policy is reflective of those issues. So, yeah, it's it's hard to keep folks together. And, and I won't tell you that um, sometimes when we are discussing candidates, we have um, intense differences of opinions. Um, but we are a democratic organization, and so we defer to whomever the majority of our affiliates agree is the best candidate. Thanks for that background. We've discussed the construction scene within Nashville and worker safety. The other sort of huge part of our of our economy now is hospitality. Can you talk about the the organizing efforts at hotels? Is that existent? Is it non-existent? And then specifically the JW Marriott. I know there's a situation there. Can you talk a bit about that? The thing that happened with the JW Marriott is that it was a sub subcontractor. So that, just like we talked about. That's mm-hmm. right that ended up um, at the end of a project not paying the workers what they were owed. Too often, wage theft is a not highly publicized part of what happens in a booming construction city like Nashville. Um, And those people trying to get their wages is sometimes difficult. Uh, We do have a worker center in Nashville that has been successful in winning wages, um, workers' dignity, uh, winning wages for those workers. Um, But that is a rallying point for everyone in the labor movement. So JW Marriott is the most recent example of that. Um, As you mentioned, um, hospitality workers, we've had um, 
several situations where hotel maids have, the employers have left because they were outside contractors and not the hotels directly. Is there any future of organizing hotels within Nashville? I mean, that's something that I wonder, is it going to happen? Because the JW Marriott, I believe, was having real concerns about their labor supply. Would they have enough workers? Right now, I think Nashville has, what, a 2% unemployment rate. It's impossible for restaurants to keep kitchen staff, hard for hotels to find staff. This seems like the prime time and place to organize labor Why haven't we seen that within hotels? Uh, We believe that it is that Nashville is the best market possible in the country for organizing hospitality workers right now. SEIU and Unite Here are um, the unions that traditionally um, organize those workers. And um, we have a a SEIU uh, local here in Nashville. But it's it's a capacity issue, you know, trying to Organized workers takes away from what Ethan talked about earlier, and that is some of the roles of just administering the contracts that we have currently and doing um, the work of running the union and servicing the members that we have. Um, But it is a priority, and we are, are working on organizing new folks into our fold as we speak. Yeah, I think your I think your observations right on Ben because a lot of the other cities that have a convention center, large convention center, uh, and where it then creates a whole base of hotels and restaurants that almost exclusively sometimes serve that the occupants of that convention center during peak times, you, that's when you see the the kind of critical mass of need. To where that happens. And so you can go around to some of our peer cities, like New Orleans, for instance, mm. uh, you know, say in, in, uh, in, in Florida, in Miami, uh, in Orlando, there are, there are hotels that are the same legal regime we're under right here, but because of the intense demand and because of organizing, you can stay in the Union Hotel there. Unfortunately, right now, you can't do that in Nashville. And one thing that people uh, should consider in the hospitality industry uh, the 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 larger industry is that you know being a union hotel can actually bring you a lot of business. Um, there's a lot of union conferences, a lot of uh, organizing conferences that go to union hotels. And of course, when the Democratic National Convention is trying to pick a place that it wants to go uh, have its uh, convention, they're looking for somewhere that has union hotels. And so it it's a it's a considerable thing that could add to the uh, strength and diversity and the and the security of having a stable workforce in a city like Nashville um, that ultimately is going to make, you know, people stay here more comfortable. They're, you know, safer, better, um, and you feel better about where you spent your money. Yeah, I know people underestimate the danger of hospitality work in terms of just repetitive use problems. Based on your question about hospitality, one of the exciting things that's happening around the country is that in the last uh, few weeks, six labor unions just struck a deal for 38,000 service employees at Walt Disney World. You know, everybody goes to see Mickey Mouse, but now those workers are at least making $15 an hour. And so I think that's a big deal, especially in the South when we struggle to um, bring wages up above minimum wage. So that's good news in the labor movement. Definitely. Anything you want to, closing thoughts? We're in a real moment right now in Nashville, and it's been building. 
um, you know, over just the last several years, I've seen more activity. You know, Vonda and I, uh, when we first became officers at the CLC, can remember, you know, meetings that, you know, we didn't know if we'd have a quorum. And we had, uh, you know, uh, pickets and rallies where you'd be lucky to have four or five folks out there with signs. And we have seen it steadily grow. We've seen successes here at the Central Labor Council that uh, more affiliates want to be part of. We've seen more volunteerism, uh, more political strength. And so um, I'm excited about where we're going as a council and as a city because of the energy that we're seeing coming out of working people, both non-union and union right now. Well said. Well, thanks again, guys, for coming on the podcast, and happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day, Ben.